we're going to be in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. Lamentations, chapter 3. It's going to be our head verse, our head chapter uh, that we're going to read out of this morning. Lamentations, chapter 3. Um, as a church, we've been walking through the book of uh, the book of the Bible, the whole book. Um, over the past six weeks or so, we're going to, we, just a few more weeks, and um, we've been doing overview of the whole book of Scripture, and we've kind of have seen that from the beginning, God created all things um, to establish His kingdom here on earth, and He provided a, a, a seed of people for Himself, and He also was trying to establish covenant with people, with His people, and yet the um, the, the sin of mankind uh, brought that kingdom, that dominion that God had given to people crashing down. Uh, it corrupted the, the race of mankind, and um, it broke covenant, and yet God in His faithfulness and His kindness and His greatness has worked to re-establish His kingdom, He worked to preserve His seed, and worked to remake His covenant. And where we left the people of God last time, at the end of the service last time, is um, Jerusalem was about to be besieged, the city of God, uh, for the people of God, and so the city of God that God had, um, that God had given to King David and given to his, given to his, um, his seed and given to his descendants was being besieged and it was about to be destroyed. And we, uh, we left off there and today we're going to start with the, the destruction of Jerusalem and we're going to, we're going to pursue through the period of exile and then the return back to, uh, the, the promised land for the people of God. Um, so if you guys don't mind reading along with me in the book of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin Waste away, he has broken my bones, he has besieged and enveloped me. With bitterness and tribulation, he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my paths with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance is perished, so is my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed within, down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. 
the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Father in heaven, we pray now that as we, your people, who await our homeland in heaven, where we will see the city whose designer and builder is God, I pray as we come to talk about the exile Father, that you would help us to feel the weightiness of this today. And that you would also help us to see the hope that you've given to your people. The hope that comes through knowing you. The only hope that you've given us for this time of exile. So it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Anyone who thinks that the Bible is outdated or obsolete that's past its prime, that it no longer matters, that it's irrelevant, has never had their life fall apart. They've never known what it's like to sit in the ashes and weep and to feel that God is crouching for them like a bear. The passage that we've just read this morning describes the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And how Jeremiah the prophet is waiting and waiting for hope from the Lord and all he sees is the rubble and the ruins of past greatness. Maybe you're you're here this morning and you have also seen your life fall apart. Maybe you're sitting in the ashes. Maybe you're cowering as you feel that the Lord is waiting to pounce upon you and you can barely lift up your eyes to look for the light. This is where the city of Jerusalem is when, when this, pa- this period in the time of the people of God begins, is that Jerusalem has fallen apart and it's been carted off in every which way to the four winds. And the question is, when everything falls apart, when the city is destroyed brick by brick, when piece after piece is torn from it and the mortar that held it together is ground into dust, can God still be at work? Can God still be at work when everything falls apart, when nothing makes sense, when life won't fit together, when it seems like there is no hope, when you are farther from Him than you feel like you've ever been, Could God possibly still be at work? That's the question of the exile. That's the question that we'll be wrestling with this morning as we follow the people of God through these periods of of exile and then of return from exile. Last week, we, we ended with kind of cheating forward a little bit into the exile, talking about how God was faithful to preserve his kingdom, and we're gonna we're gonna start back a little bit. So there's gonna be a little bit of overlap with last week. Um The exile begins in earnest uh, when King Josiah heads off to stop Pharaoh from Egypt from from bringing an army past his territory. And so Pharaoh goes down to, uh, uh, Josiah goes down to put Pharaoh in his place and instead Josiah is put into the grave. 
And Pharaoh, after he finishes his war with Babylon, returns to Jerusalem and establishes a king in Jerusalem, one of Josiah's sons, a man named Jehoahaz. And Jehoahaz is a fool, and he only reigns for three years. And then, and then after that, the Babylonian Empire comes from the east. And what we're beginning to see is that the city of Jerusalem is being caught between the hammer and the anvil, as it were, between two moving forces, two waves, the, the Babylonians in the east and Egypt in the west. And, and the, the, the city of Jerusalem has kind of been put at this really providential place. And we see that on the one hand, there, there's the Egyptians who've, who are carting some of them off. And then the Babylonians, they, they come and they, they, um, they take away Jehoahaz and they put a man named Eliakim on the throne or Jehoiakim on the throne. And Jehoiakim reigns until he rebels, and so the Babylonians come and take him, and they put, uh, they put his brother Zechariah in his place, and Zechariah reigns until he rebels, and they come and they destroy the city of Jerusalem. Well, as the Babylonians are carting them off into exile, after they've, they've, they've deposed Jehoiakim, and they've, they have brought them into the east, and they're sitting on the, the banks of the rivers of Babylon, uh, there's this prophet named Ezekiel. And if you ever ever just want to have some weird dreams, read Ezekiel right before you go to bed. Because Ezekiel has this dream, this vision uh, of the glory of God. And he pictures the glory of God in these wheels and on this cart and in this chariot. And, 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 and he's imagining this and he, he's seeing this and the Lord is giving him this vision. And the glory of God ascends from the temple where it was dwelling and it departs. And Ezekiel knows there is no hope now for Jerusalem. The glory of God has left the people of God, and the city is destroyed. Zechariah, of course, when he rebels against Babylon, the king of Babylon comes and he takes Zechariah, and he kills all of his family in front of him, then puts out his eyes and kills him. This is the scene that Jeremiah is describing in Lamentations. The destruction of Jerusalem. It was a horrific, traumatic event for all who beheld it. Israel is carted off into exile. And yet what we see is that these three themes, they will not go away. That even though the kingdom is lost, the king remains See, after the Lord, after Babylon had deposed King Zechariah, uh, his nephew, the son of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim uh, Je- son of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim is is preserved, and, and the kingdom is, is is even though the kingdom is lost, the king remains, and even though the the kingdom is lost, God has preserved the seed of David, the the branch of the house of David. And God, of course, begins to promise these, these new covenants with His people in the period of the exile. And perhaps most profoundly of all, when Ezekiel sees the, the glory of God departing from the temple, when Ezekiel sees that glory being lifted up in that cart and leaving the temple, it's not just going anywhere. It's headed east. The glory of God goes with the people of God, into exile. And even though they're going into exile as a punishment for their sin, the glory of God dwells in a people, in in the midst of the people of Israel and bears their sin with them. 
the glory of God, the covenant of God is, is not broken. God continues to remain with his people, even though his people have departed from his ways. And we see that that presence of God with his people continues throughout the period of the exile. Uh, the, the, like many of the nations around when they were brought into exile, there was the, the upper class, the upper echelon, the, the elites of Jerusalem were, were put into the court and the bureaucracy and the service of the king of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar one time has a dream, and he, he, he can't figure out what the dream is, so he calls in all of his wise men, all of his magi, and he asks them to, to provide an interpretation for the dream and to tell that, him what the dream was about so he would know that they were really not making it up. And they say, well, that's impossible. Nobody can do that except for the gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar is about to put them all to death until Daniel says, my, my God is the true God. And Daniel comes and he's able to provide an interpretation of the dream of, of this statue that Nebuchadnezzar had seen and how it, it tells the story of how all the, these succeeding kingdoms are going to be ground into pieces. They're all going to be destroyed, but the, the kingdom of the Lord will last forever. Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, this is an adventure and missing the point because he thinks what he needs to do is build that statue and make it of himself and have everyone bow down to it and worship him, except Nebuchadnezzar's buddies won't do, or uh, Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do that. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar throws them all into a fiery furnace. Those of you who've who've seen the veggie tales, uh, the, the bunny, know what this is about. And, and they're in the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, and he, he, he says, I'm not good at math. We, we put how many people into the furnace again? And they say, well, we put three people in. He says, but I see four figures in there. And suddenly Nebuchadnezzar realizes, oh, God is with his people in the furnace. And so he, he has them brought out again, and he calls them, and he makes a decree he makes a decree that the, the, only the God of Israel, would, that the God of Israel is higher than all the other gods. Well, well Nebuchadnezzar's son and his day is coming. Nebuchadnezzar's son is wicked and foolish, and so God brings in the Persians to destroy Nebuchadnezzar's son's kingdom. And, and the Persians come in and they take, the, they take all the, the wealth and all the bureaucracy of Babylon and they transplant it into Persia. Along with all the Jew, the many of not all, but many of the Jews who were in Babylon, they bring them east into Persia. Now, mind you, the people of God at this point are farther away than when Abraham was when God called him. When they get called into exile into Persia, the people of God are farther away than they were when the story started almost. Could God still be with them there? Well, Daniel, of course, is is elevated to this position. He's one of the highest officials in the, the kingdom of Persia, and, and that makes him a ripe target for those who want to uh, oppose him in the court of the king of Persia. And, and so, they, so the, those who want to oppose him are, are, are scheming about ways to entrap him, and they, they convince the, the king of Persia to, to, to um, make this decree that nobody could bow down to any god except for the king of Persia for, for 30 days. And so um, he makes this decree. Well, Daniel is not, he's not cowed by this. He's not afraid of nothing. He goes up into his second floor. He opens up the window so everyone can see him. And he prays to the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, they, they, they throw him into the lion's den and expecting that he's just going to be devoured and torn to pieces. But on the other side of this, Daniel is preserved. That the Lord has been with him. 
We see the, the Lord continue to be with his people, even in their exile through the story of Esther, who's, who's elevated to one of the positions of the king of Persia's harem. And she, she has this place, and God has put her there for such a time as this, so that at the right time she could intercede for the people of God, even though there was, there was people who were scheming against the people of God, trying to destroy them. And yet, because Esther was there to intercede for the people of God, the king of Persia, uh, was able to provide a way that, that they could fight back and defend themselves, and the Feast of Purim would be celebrated by all the people of God for all the time afterwards. And we see that through God's providential ordering, through His provision, God is still with His people. He's still preserving His people. Even those things seem like they couldn't possibly be worse for the people of God. God has not abandoned His people. He's not left them. Even though they've gone into exile, He's gone with them into exile. And we see that He's still preserving his kingdom. He's still preserving his people. He's still preserving the seed of David. He's still preserving the the house of David. In fact, it's in this time where, where these prophecies are coming that the house of David is going to be elevated and God has not abandoned the kingdom and he hasn't abandoned the seed of, of David to whom he promised an everlasting kingdom. In fact, there's this prophecy in Daniel 7 that God is going to establish an everlasting kingdom. And somehow that's going to come about through the, 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 this angelic, majestic, divine figure called the Son of Man in Daniel 7. And yet, yet, yet somehow that's also the Son of David. There's all these prophecies that the Son of David is going to establish the everlasting kingdom. And so, so somehow God is working to preserve His kingdom. That God's promises seemingly get more audacious the farther the kingdom seems like it's gone into oblivion. And yet God is also preserving the seed of David. He's still preserving the kings who came from David, even though they're in exile this time. And so God is still keeping His covenant. In fact, throughout the period of exile, God continues to promise there's going to be a new covenant. A covenant that is going to be better than all the covenants that came before. A covenant that will will provide the last word that will say, I will not abandon my people. I will be with them and they will be with me. That I will not leave them in this forever. Kingdom, seed, and covenant. We move from the period of the exile to the period of the return. When Cyrus is elevated to the position of, of the king of Persia, King Cyrus, and King Cyrus makes a decree that all the Jews are supposed to return to the promised land, the land that God had given to their fathers. And so the Jews begin to return. The first set of them, they go with the, under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. If you're looking for a name to say three times fast, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. And they go under the leadership of Zerubbabel and they, they rebuild the altar and the temple. And then, and then Cyrus, the king of Persia, sends Ezra, the priest, to teach the people of God. And Ezra teaches them the law and they, they, they realize their sins have gotten them to this place and they, they, they repent of their sins. There's this national revival. And then God works to send Nehemiah. And Nehemiah comes to the the city of Jerusalem and he sees the walls are broken down and he leads the people of Israel to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and he puts one family on one part of the wall and one family on the other until the whole wall is rebuilt and the kingdom looks promising and the city looks reestablished and it it seems like there's hope blossoming and flowering for the people of God. It seems like the the city, the the, the city that God had set his name upon, the city that God had given to his people and to the children of David from which he's going to establish his everlasting kingdom. It seems like that kingdom is going to be preserved, like that kingdom is going to last, that it's going to come back. 
And this is despite all the, the, the opposition that they get at nearly every stage. At nearly every stage of this period of time, there are enemies who are coming to harass the people of God. And so Nehemiah even has to tell the people who are building the walls to keep a sword with them. So that way, if somebody attacks them, they can fend them off while they continue to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And you see that God is continuing to provide for them despite all of this opposition that they're getting. And so God allows and providentially orders and supplies and works miraculously that the people of God would be preserved, that they would rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and it seems like they're on the cusp of greatness. And you'd think that this time, after all that they've been through, after everything that, that they've been through, they've gone all the way to Persia and back, that you, you would think that they would have learned their lesson that they would have stopped breaking the covenant, that they would have stopped breaking the law, that they would have followed the Lord and not abandoned Him for others. Yet that's actually not what we see. Because on the one hand, at nearly every stage, nearly every stage, there's opposition coming from the world opposing the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But on the other, the children of Israel are sinning at nearly every turn. They're marrying, intermarrying with women who are leading them astray to worship other gods. They're worshiping other gods for themselves. And perhaps the most devastatingly of all, some of them don't want to come back from the exile. God has just worked to provide for them and bring them back from their their exile that's a result of their own sin, and some of them would rather remain in exile. And yet, nevertheless, we see God providing for this kingdom and a seed and his covenant. You see, God is continuing to promise that he's going to establish this everlasting kingdom. And that indeed he will not abandon his people even after all that they've done. And we, we see that he's preserving the seed of Zerubbabel. He's, he's preserving the seed of the line of David to, to, to provide a Messiah to stand on the throne. We see that his seed is, is continuing to be kept and that, that somehow there's going to be intertwined with the Son of Man. We see all these themes come together and God has not abandoned the line of David as he promised. And we see that God continues to promise that there's going to be this new covenant. That he's going to continue to, he continues to promise. In fact, the, the worse Israel gets, the worse the situation gets, it seems like the more audacious God's promises get. This is from the book of Ezekiel, slightly earlier in the period of the exile, promising the new covenant in Ezekiel 16. It says, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Kingdom, seed, and covenant, God continues. And so what we see is that it seems like the people of God are poised 
to continue this cycle that we've seen throughout redemptive history. This cycle where, where God saves his people and then they fall quickly into apostasy. They fall quickly into breaking the covenant and wandering away from him. And then they cry out from their oppression that comes as an inevitable result and God provides a savior. We saw that ever since the time of Judges. And we see it seems like, it seems like the people of God are about to head into that again. Except God, at this point, chooses to be silent. For 400 years, God chooses to be silent. He chooses, not, not to say that his word wasn't with them and that the, the system that his temple wasn't with them and that he wasn't with his people, but he stopped sending new prophets. He stopped sending this. And the question is, why, why did God stop? Why didn't God answer their prayers and return to them? And the, the, the best I can do to answer that question is this, that, that God wanted them to receive the promises that he had already given to them and believe in them and trust in them and grab hold of them and to not abandon them. And that the promises that God has already given he wants them to receive and to believe. So as they look back to the promises that they've already been given from the Lord, um, that the stage would be set well for the, the final act that's going to come in the life of Christ. And it's at that point that we're going to cut it off and we will pick it up next week. So as we talk about the, the, the climax of the story of the Bible, the, the coming of Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, and how he comes to save his people. But for now, I want to leave you with a handful of applications as we close our, our as we continue, begin to wind down our time in the Word this morning. And the first application I want to give is this, that God will not allow wickedness and injustice to go on forever. God will not allow wickedness and injustice to go on forever. We see that very clearly with the destruction of Jerusalem. The wickedness of the king of Israel, that they had filled Jerusalem with blood from one end to another. And their idolatry and their adultery and their wandering ways and their faithlessness that God has seen fit to, to punish and to deal with. God has seen fit to, to, to deal with their injustice. And God... Oh, God is patient. He will not allow it to go on forever. He, he will not allow their wickedness to continue forever, but rather he will punish it. And there will be consequences for their sin. Uh, but to see, to add to that, my second application is this, that when God's people face the consequences of their sin, we've said that again and again throughout our time, God still dwells among them. God still dwells among his people. We see that with the, the, the glory of the Lord leaving the temple of Jerusalem and going with his people into exile, God still dwells among his people. He hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't walked away from them. In fact, he walks with them. And of course, that is, is setting the stage for the coming of Christ. The book of John will tell us, would tabernacle amongst us and would dwell amongst us and would bear our sins and become a curse for us, that God still goes with his people into exile. 
He goes with his people into sin. In fact, he bears the exile so that they can return. We also see this, number three, in this, this period. God's mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. And so if you're here and you feel like you've let the Lord down or you failed him or you, you've said or done something that you regret, that you wish you could take back, and you feel so borne down by it, his mercies are new every morning. Hear these words from the book of Lamentations again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. The the grace of God is available anew when someone lets the Lord down and when they fail him and when they fall, uh, when when they fail his ways and they break his covenant and they they let him down that, he is, the book of 1 John says that he is faithful to forgive. That God shows his faithfulness in forgiving us for our sins. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. But I'd also hasten to add this. Don't merely deal with the circumstances of consequences for your sin. Don't merely deal, in other words, when you get caught for your sin or when you feel the guilt of it or the pressure of it or the pain of it or you, you, you know that you've done wrong, don't merely feel a worldly grief that leads to sorrow, as Paul says in Second Corinthians. Don't merely be sad that you went into exile or that you got caught for your sin, but do the business of dealing with the cause of it. Don't deal, deal merely with the circumstances don't apologize that you are in the wrong time and in the wrong place. Don't, don't merely be sad that the, the external circumstances happen, but penetrate to the cause. Because what we see becomes clear, at least with some of the exiles that went into exile, is that they were sad that they got taken into exile, but they were not repentant for their sin that led them to exile in the first place. They were sad about the consequences of their sin, but they did not abandon their sin, which is why when they went into exile, some of them said, this isn't so bad. I can do this for a while longer. And the promises and the covenant of the Lord were waiting for them to to seize, and they did not deal with the circumstances. They did not deal with the the cause of their sin, merely the external circumstances. Christians, if you and I are to to grow in godliness and to grow in Christ-likeness, we must penetrate to the cause and repent of the cause of circumstance, the cause of sin, not merely the external circumstance. I'd also add this. Exile, being in exile, is no excuse for disobedience. Being in exile is no excuse for disobedience. Being in exile is no excuse for disobedience. We we, we see in the New Testament that we are actually called exiles. The book of 1 Peter calls us the elect exiles in 1 Peter 1. The book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. 
that you and I ought to identify with the exiles, that we are awaiting a homeland, a city whose designer and builder is God. We are awaiting the day where we will be with him and he will be with us. We're awaiting that day when he will return and make all things new. We are not at our home. We are exiles, much like the children of Israel. And therefore, just like they had no excuse for disobedience, neither do we. We cannot allow the, the, the time of exile that we're living in to become an excuse for disobedience. I think if we look at the stories that are in the book of Daniel, we can see examples of what it means to be faithful in this time. If we look at Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had a very clear red line. They were not going to bow the knee. And they were prepared to deal with the consequences. Oh, Christians, in a time of exile, you and I must not use that as an excuse for disobedience. When life isn't working out the way that we want it to be, and this world's not like what we'd want it to be, that's not an excuse that God has provided for you to press into disobedience, but to press into his love and his provision. I'd also say this. God's people need to engage in strategic acts of public faithfulness. Let me say it again. God's people need to engage in strategic acts of public faithfulness. Put yourself in the shoes of Daniel. You get to Babylon. You see there are there's idolatry literally everywhere. On every street corner, the gates of the city are, are God's. Nebuchadnezzar has renamed, given you all names of, uh, of God. The, the name Abednego is actually the, the Chaldean name. Abednego, which means servant of Nego. And who's Nego? He's a, he's a God. I mean, literally, there's all this idolatry and there's all this, adult, there's all this stuff that's going on in the city of Babylon. It, it, it is a cesspool of just about every kind of immorality you can imagine. If you're in exile in that city, how do you start? Where do you even start? What do you even say? I mean, there's so many messes and so many issues and so many problems. And how do you even construct like a, how how do you even defend your worldview and your beliefs? Here's how Daniel started. Daniel and his friends, they get into their training program to enter into the court of the king of Babylon. Here's what they say. Yeah, we're just not going to eat meat that we think has been sacrificed to idols. Like, we're just not going to do that. You can do whatever you want. We're just not going to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. They don't say, here's everything, everything that you're doing wrong, and let me tell you why you're doing wrong, and I cannot wait for the fire and brimstone to come down. I got marshmallows already. <laughs> they just say, yeah, we're just, we're just not going to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. I'm just not going to do that. I'm just, I'm just going to choose to eat meat. I'm just going to choose to eat vegetables because I, I don't want to uh, engage in some kind of idolatry uh, that would vex my, my God. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to, to do that. If you think of Daniel, I mean, Daniel's strategic act of public faithfulness. Yeah, you can tell me to pray to whoever you want me to. I'm going to go up on the second window, open up my window so you can see. I'm just going to pray to my God. God's people need to, Daniel doesn't, you know, go and deconstruct their worldview and he doesn't pick apart every single point and show them why they're all fools and he doesn't, you know, come down and Daniel just says, I'm just going to pray to my God. As Christians, we need to engage in strategic acts of faithfulness. So maybe you are at work and it's kind of a 
it's kind of a thing at work that, you know, there's dishonesty or gossip or, or, or there's kind of crude joking. And you can just say, yeah, I'm just, I'm just not going to engage in that. Like you guys can do your, th- but I'm just, that's just not for me. I just don't, I, I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not, I'm not going to spend my off time uh, saying these things. I, I, like as a God, as a Christian, I just can't do that. And God's people need to engage in strategic acts of public faithfulness. I'd also say this. We should be thankful for the gift of silence from God. Let me say that again. We should be thankful for the gift of silence from God. That's maybe counterintuitive. Maybe there was a time when you first became a Christian and it just seemed like everything was new to you and it just seemed like the Lord was speaking to you through His Word and, and it just seemed like your prayer life was so vibrant and you'd share the gospel with everyone and yet as the, the days and the months and the years have dulled your senses, you just you feel like it's very dry. You should be thankful for those seasons of dryness. That's what Israel went through for 400 years before the Lord sent his son. We see the, the book of Lamentations, the chapter 3, what we just read, continues this way. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good. This is God's word. It says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke and his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. For though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Christians, God gives us the gift of his silence so that you and I would press in deeper. We'd be motivated to press in farther into his love for us that's shown in the gospel. God gives us the gift of his silence that would cause us to reflect upon all that he's done for us. God gives us the gift of silence so that we would be, that we would be prone and, and amplified and ready to hear the good news of the gospel. Silence from the Lord and dryness from the Lord is not escaped His plan, has not escaped His sight, has not escaped His vision, but rather it's a sign of His love for us because it causes us to press in deeper to what the Lord has for us. And so if you, if you feel that you are in a season of your life where it is spiritually dry, you just, you, you read your Bible, but it's just words on a page, and, it, and you pray, but you just words in the air, and you don't, you don't get the sense of God's presence. Like, you know mentally, intellectually, cognitively that He's there with you, but you just don't get the sense of that from His Word or, or from praying with Him. That's God's gift to you, to, that you and I would press in farther and deeper into his word that we might know him and love him more. And that when he does turn his face to us, when his word does light upon us, it's meant to give us hope.
We should thank gift God for the gift of his silence. And finally, I'd say this. When everything seems like it is falling apart, God is still faithful to build his kingdom. When everything seems like it is falling apart, God is still faithful to build his kingdom. A couple of weeks ago, um, maybe you will remember that I made a big deal out of a group of people called the Gibeonites. Remember the Gibeonites? Of course you do. I know you hang on my every word. The Gibeonites were this people who tricked, who tricked Israel when Israel was entering into the promised land into letting them be, join the people of God. And they, there's this whole thing where they were kind of enslaved. And, and so you, don't, you see glimpses of the Gibeonites occasionally throughout the, the Old Testament. But let me give you two glimpses that are really important. I promised you I was going to come back to them. When the people of God are taken into exile, the Gibeonites, these Canaanites, these foreigners, these Gentiles, are so joined to the people of God that they go with the people into exile. And when they come back, so do the Gibeonites. These people who were far have been brought near. These people who were not of God's people are now of God's people. And the time where in the darkest period in the history of the people of God, when the, the walls of Jerusalem are lying in ruins all around them, you see God still faithfully building his kingdom, faithfully, quietly, patiently, lovingly expanding the people of God. We'll see that only continue next week. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your ways. God, we thank you that when everything seems like it is falling apart, that you are still faithful to give us your goodness, that you are still faithful to build your kingdom, that you are still faithful to further the cause of your gospel. And so we pray for ourselves that when we feel like we are exiles, when we feel like we are in, that we, when we feel silence, Father, that we would be thankful for that as an opportunity to serve you. And, and that we would, in those times, press in deeper, that we would know your steadfast love that is new every morning. And so it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. This time in our church's life, we come, to, we come to the period of communion, where together we um, take the Lord's Supper as one people. As we draw near to the Lord, the Lord draws us near to one another. Uh, Psalm seventy-eight nineteen asks, Can God still build, can God still set a table in the wilderness? Can God still set a table in the wilderness? And some of this is in your bulletin. And one, one of the blessings of the New Testament is that, is that we see in the Lord's Supper that he does indeed set a table for us in our time of exile, in our time of wilderness, when it seems like we've been cast away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord still sets a table for us in the wilderness. I, I say this in the in the bulletin, and I'm probably not creative to come up with something like this twice. Um, 
I said this, it says, as Christians, where can we see his provident hand more than in the Lord's table? There we see the body broken so we might be mended, his blood spilled so we might be filled. The table is where God gives us his promises of forgiveness, the everlasting covenant which will never be annulled. The table is where we gather as exiles to eat of the harvest of our homeland, to drink of the vine of our heavenly abode. It is where we look forward to that day when our exile, our exodus will be over. And we will enter at last into the rest that yet remains for the people of God. There we will dwell in a house that we did not build and eat of fields that we did not plant because its designer and builder is God. And so when we come together to eat of this table, to draw near to the Lord of this table, we are uh, preparing ourselves and readying ourselves to enter into his presence once and for all to be exiles no more. This, this table is meant to give us a glimpse of that day where we will sit anew with him in the kingdom of God. And so it's, it's at this time that we are going to distribute this. Um, because in our church, we really believe that um, God was meant it when he said, that the one who eats or drinks this in a manner unworthy eats or drinks judgment on himself. Uh, we, we just ask that you respect a couple, of, um, a couple of things that we understand to be biblical and scriptural when we come to the Lord's table. The first is that we just be believers. So if, if you're here this morning, you have never made a profession of faith, you never put your faith in Jesus, we could not be happier to have you here this morning. There's nothing that we uh, love more than to have those who are not Christians, come here, and we, you are so welcome. We want you to be here. But this, this table is for those who can draw near by faith. And so if you don't feel like in good conscience, you can draw near by faith. If you've never put your faith in Christ, we just would ask you. No one's going to think any less of you just to let the table pass. We'd also ask, because this is a table which binds us together, uh, that there's a community function for us. We, we believe that church membership, in a way, prepares us to take of this table. We, we just would ask, if you're not a member of a church, if you haven't uh, given yourself to the life of a local body, um, that you would just also let this pass. Again, it's not because we don't love you. It's not because we don't want you here. It's not because anybody thinks less of you. We just think one of the ways that God prepares us to take of the table, one of the ways that God prepares to give us His Son is by giving us each other. And so I just would, I just would ask that um, if, if you're not a member at a local church, it doesn't have to be this church, but if you're not a member at this local church, you just would let this pass. Um, not, again, because you're not loved or wanted here. You actually are loved and wanted here. We do want you here. We do love you. But again, we, we, we have to stand by what God's Word teaches and instructs us, and we want to come to this table as the family of God, um, ready to partake of what he's given us. And so this time, the way this will work this morning is I'm going to pray, and then Peter's going to come up, and together we'll distribute the bread, and then um, we'll, we'll take the bread together, and then uh, we'll come up and we'll do the same with the, the cup. Father, have we pray even now that you would prepare our hearts. Pray for anyone who has something on their heart that is keeping them from you, maybe a doubt, maybe a sin, maybe some kind of um, uh, guilt that they're bearing today. Father, that you would give them the opportunity to bring that before you even now. That you would let them lay that on the table even now as they um, come before you. And Father, we pray that you'd prepare this cup and this bread for us even today. 
Pray that you would prepare us to receive it and it for us, that we might grow closer to your Son and closer to one another. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.